0: The presidency of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.
1: The anxiety here is great for the final decision. The opposition increases with delay and predicts that it will terminate in vapor. This would produce, on the one part, a complete triumph, and on the other, an overthrow. National decision and vigor would recover soon the lost ground, would fill the ranks of the army, and would supply the treasury. The wealth of the nation is at the command of the government. If 50 millions are wanted, It may be procured, as I conceive promptly, by various ways and means familiar to our financier. The nation can fund that or double the sum. Sure I am that it will be most strenuously opposed by British influence, through every channel, for to such means I have ever been the declared enemy. God's name be praised that the southern and western states are uncontaminated, and that in this section the physical force of the republicans, which would increase rapidly in case of a war, far exceeds that of our adversaries. By war, we should be purified, as by fire. Elbridge Gary to James Madison, 19th of May, 1812.
0: The avenues to the public ear are closed against truth. And as to Congress, they are, and have long been, the tools of prejudice, faction, and power. It is a hopeless task to address oneself to them. I listen to the wisest of them, and to me their talk is as the talk of children. The die is cast, and the ruin of a nation is a chief price paid for bolstering up the consistency of a few of the most weak and worthless individuals in it. Representative John Randolph of Roanoke. Two days after President Madison signed the declaration of war against Great Britain, British Minister to the U.S. Augustus Foster sent a copy of the war declaration to his superiors in London, asserting that, quote, this extraordinary measure seems to have been unexpected by nearly the whole nation and to have been carried in opposition to the declared sentiments of many of those who voted for it. On the same day that British Foreign Secretary Lord Castlereagh announced that the orders in council, which had been the subject of American protests for years, were being repealed, Foster had his last meeting with Madison at the President's invitation. On June 25th, he and his Vice Consul, Gabriel Wood, along with Foster's two dogs, departed from Washington, D.C. and traveled first to Baltimore, then to New York City, before boarding a ship which arrived in Halifax, Nova Scotia, on July 17th. Soon enough, Foster made his way back across the Atlantic, arriving in Britain on August 22nd. It's beyond the scope of this podcast to follow Foster's life and career any further, for, though he would maintain a correspondence with some figures in the U.S., his future lay elsewhere. Just as the Declaration of War of June 18th, 1812 altered Foster's trajectory, so too did it alter the lives of so many on both sides of the Atlantic. We'll begin to explore these impacts in this episode, but for now, I'd like to welcome you to the presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Kevin and Ryan of the Almost Presidents podcast for providing the intro quotes for this episode. While this podcast deals with the folks who actually ascended to the presidency, Ryan and Kevin examine the lives and careers of those who had presidential ambitions that went unfulfilled. Their first series of episodes have been on the life of Robert Kennedy, a figure that we discussed in our special episode on the turbulent 1968 presidential election. I've greatly enjoyed their dive into RFK and his path to the presidential campaign that abruptly and tragically ended with his assassination. If you want to learn more about Robert Kennedy, I highly recommend that you check out their podcast anywhere fine podcasts can be found. They can also be found on Twitter at AlmostPotusPod. I'll share more information about the Almost Presidents podcast on my social media around the release of this episode.
1: This is Alex Hasting, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio vs. the World, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you as Ohio vs. the World makes history fun again.
0: Though we've been hearing about the drumbeats of war in the halls of power in recent episodes of the podcast, as Foster informed the British government, and as we heard in one of our opening quotes, there are definitely some questions as to the will of the American people when it came to this war with Britain. As we're examining a time long before opinion polls and popular mass communication, it's difficult to gauge what opinion, if any, the average citizen had about entering into war with Britain. Certainly, there had been demonstrations when certain offenses happened, like the Chesapeake Leopard Affair. But did this mean that folks were ready for the men of the United States to take up arms and, as some leaders want it, march across the border to take Canada? We'll see this question of public willingness to prosecute the aims of the war come up time and again as we go along. For now, though, we must pick up on a thread we only briefly touched on last episode for while Washington was gearing up for war with Britain, another conflict involving American forces had already started in East Florida. In episode 4.18, we left off the East Florida situation with the governor of East Florida, Juan José de Estrada, reporting back to Spanish authorities that, after concerns that the Americans were plotting to take the colony, it seemed like everything was quiet. Unfortunately for Estrada, there was more happening than he was aware. Just as he had been making plans for the defense of East Florida, so too had General George Matthews been hard at work trying to recruit folks for what was being called the Patriot Cause. However, early 1892 found him facing the reality that his efforts had resulted thus far in only a few recruits. Thus, Matthews turned to two potential sources of support. First, in late January, he wrote Secretary of State James Monroe requesting, quote, a company of artillery and one of infantry from the U.S. Army. Then, Matthews traveled to meet with Georgia Governor David Bridey Mitchell to request support from the state militia. Mitchell, quote, ordered Major General John Floyd of the state militia to hold militia troops in readiness along the border. Having secured at least some ground troops, in late February, he met with Commodore Hugh Campbell, who had a squadron on the St. Mary's River. Campbell was initially concerned about whether he had the authority to assist Matthews in his efforts as Secretary of the Navy Paul Hamilton had not issued official orders for him to provide naval assistance to the Patriots. However, upon examining Matthews's commission, he offered his squadron support. It may have been a force of only 125 men, but by early March, Matthews had his Patriot army. It was a good thing, too, because time was of the essence to have a possibility of success. Matthews had learned that a new governor was being sent to East Florida to replace Estrada. This new official, Sebastian Kindelun E. O'Regan, was much more capable than Estrada. Matthews described him as, quote, a gentleman of handsome talents and military experience. On top of having a capable commander in charge, it was expected that Kindelun would bring with him fresh troops. If the Patriots were to have a chance of taking East Florida before his arrival, Matthews knew they had to put their plan into action as soon as possible. Matthews revealed to his fellow officers that he planned to use their force to take St. Augustine, the capital of the Spanish colony. However, he found this plan being opposed by Major Jacint Laval, the second in command of U.S. Army forces stationed at Point Peter that would be a part of the assault. Historian James Cusick noted that Matthews had deliberately left Laval out of the initial planning and that, quote, it would prove to be a costly mistake. Indeed, though he hadn't been included in Matthews's inner circle, he had heard enough to know that something had been going on behind his back. Again from Cusick, quote, the general's intrigues, far from being noble, struck the major, i.e. Laval, as dubious and mercenary. Cusick also makes the point that the involvement of two Jewish individuals in Matthews' planning may also have turned Laval against the plot, as he was quite anti-Semitic. For days, Laval and Matthews went back and forth, yelling, screaming, and threatening one another, with Laval refusing to authorize troops from Point Peter being involved in any attack on East Florida. Matthews had made a deadline of Monday, March 16th for the Patriot force to start their attack and every day spent fighting with Laval without a resolution meant that one more day of preparation had been lost. While Matthews continued to sort out the situation on the U.S. side, John Houston McIntosh, the man who, as we discussed last episode, Matthews had chosen to be the public leader of the Patriot cause, traveled with two associates into East Florida to set up a quote-unquote makeshift camp on quote a modest table of land on the far bank of Bells River, just below the point where it forked from the St. Mary's River, which would be the initial Patriot headquarters in East Florida. If McIntosh and the Patriots were going to maintain the illusion of this being an internal rebellion against Spanish authority rather than an externally driven coup, they would need a call to action aimed at the residents of East Florida. Thus, they used this opportunity to draft, quote, a manifesto voicing the grievances that vindicated their break with the Spanish crown and urging the people of East Florida to join their cause. They promised lands to those who would become adherents and threatened banishment and confiscation of property against those who would not. Matthews, meanwhile, decided to get Laval's superiors in Washington involved. After having Laval brought up on formal charges of quote, conduct unbecoming an officer and neglect of duty, the General wrote Secretary of State Monroe on March 14th, requesting that Laval be relieved of his command, asserting that, quote, the time has arrived when something must be done, and if you ever expect the Floridas, send on immediately the companies of artillery and infantry I requested in my former letter. In the meantime, with Laval still in place and continuing to thwart Matthews' plan, he finally had to admit that taking St. Augustine without the U.S. Army forces at Point Peter was an impossible prospect. There was, however, another target that would be easier for a small force to occupy that was closer than St. Augustine. Just across the river on Amelia Island, there was Fernandina, the second largest town in East Florida. As described by Cusick, this settlement of 600, quote, was the commercial and social apex of the landed Gentry, of Amelia Island. It was a center of commerce in East Florida with Fernandina serving as, quote, a major base of operations for the international slave trade following the U.S. ban on importing slaves a few years prior. The military commandant at Fernandina, Don Justo Lopez, had been hearing rumors for a little bit, but on Saturday, March 14th, he got his first confirmed report, quote, that troops were coming across from Georgia and that it appeared that John Houston McIntosh was the leader of these forces. Lopez sent his brother-in-law to St. Augustine to bring word of this invasion to Governor Estrada. With only nine regular soldiers under his command, without reinforcements from Estrada, Lopez would be hard-pressed to fend off an attack. The next day, the Patriot force began their march towards Fernandina, taking over a plantation along the way to act as their camp. While positioned there, new recruits started coming in, especially when they heard the terms of the Patriot Manifesto. Free land or exile and the confiscation of all their property? It wasn't a tough choice. In one day, the Patriot force had doubled its size to around 150 individuals. Meanwhile, two American gunboats got in place at the mouth of the Amelia River to block access to or from Fernandina by the sea. Lopez sent a formal protest to St. Mary's in Georgia and gathered the leaders of the town's militia to plan for Fernandina's defense. Word came back from the messenger he had sent to St. Mary's. Indeed, this messenger had a message from General Matthews himself. Quote, the Patriots were going to descend Bells River and force the surrender of Fernandina. They would have the assistance of five heavily armed American gunboats, and if the people of the town resisted, then the gunboats would knock get i.e. the town, down about their ears. That evening, an ultimatum was sent by John Houston McIntosh. Quote, the determination of the United States to take possession of our province by conquest have caused us to agree who have interested ourselves in the advantages which we actually enjoy to place it under their protection. Therefore, We have already secured all the country between the St. John's and St. Mary's, and had it not been for an unexpected circumstance, we would have had possession of St. Augustine and the fort on tomorrow night. So that you see how far I am engaged in this business, and that I cannot now retrocede, we have sufficient forces to conquer all the province. We intend laying siege to Amelia Island, or, more properly, to invite you to unite with us in our glorious cause. And I assure you that if our proposition is admitted by you without objections, none of our soldiers shall place their feet upon it, i.e., the island. But otherwise, if you do not admit to it, no one can answer for the consequences. The situation was already grim. Then, on Monday, March 16th, Lopez awoke to find that someone had spiked their six pound cannon. The sergeant of the regular troops admitted rather quickly that he was the one who had done so. Then, before Lopez could place him under arrest, the sergeant's superior officer explained that he thought Lopez had ordered the cannon spiked. Lopez had ordered nails placed by the cannon in case they had to spike it if they were about to suffer a defeat, but the officer had misinterpreted the order. There was nothing for Lopez to do but to order their one remaining cannon be put in its place. Back and forth, messengers went throughout the day as the Patriots attempted to convince the defenders of Fernandina to join their cause, but to no avail. On March 17th, the gunboats positioned themselves to carry out an assault on Fernandina, and soon, five gunboats were, quote, within a pistol shot of the plaza. Realizing the situation was hopeless, Lopez ordered the Spanish flag to be taken down and sent a messenger to surrender the town to the U.S. Navy. However, this offer was refused. Remember, this is the Patriots launching an internal rebellion. The U.S. is not taking over anything until, of course, the Patriots asked them to take over. Thus, Lopez ordered the flag raised once more. Around 2 p.m., the signal was given for the Patriot Force to begin to make its way to Fernandina. With less than 100 men to face around 250 to 300 Patriots and over 200 sailors of the U.S. Navy, Lopez had no choice but to surrender. Around 5 o'clock, the Patriot Forces entered the town and a brief surrender ceremony was held in the plaza. As Cusick described it, quote, the Patriots were masters of the second largest town in Spanish East Florida and they had captured it without firing a shot. The very next day, March 18th, Matthews and McIntosh participated in a quote ceremony that would officially deliver northeastern Florida into American possession. Rather than fully establishing an independent republic that would then request cession to the United States as had been done in West Florida, Matthews, had opted for an unapologetic land grab. He had no intention of stopping with Fernandina, however. In short order, the Patriot forces started marching south towards the Calford Ferry to cross the St. John's River towards St. Augustine. The Spanish governor of East Florida, Juan José de Estrada, had little time to figure out a plan of action. As noted by historian James Cusick, quote, With only his regular troops and the town militia at his disposal, Estrada ruled out an attack on the rebels. The threats that Matthews and the Patriot force were making about seizing the property of folks who remained loyal to Spain while at the same time offering, quote, up to 500 acres of land as a reward for signing up as a Patriot volunteer turned numerous settlers along the St. John's River to their cause. One of these new converts, shortly after joining the Patriots, quote, informed John Houston McIntosh that the Spaniards intended to arrest him and to confiscate his property. As noted by Cusick, quote, this news unsettled the planner. Apparently, he had convinced himself that the Spanish authorities, like so many settlers, would see the futility of opposition and embrace an American takeover. Still, the Patriots continued their advance, and on March 25th, a force of around 200 patriots arrived on the western edge of St. Augustine. As described by Cusick, quote, no turn of the imagination could transform San Augustine de la Florida Oriental into an American town. The squat and sprawling vecindario, or neighborhood, with its fortress and redoubts, resembled something out of medieval romance. It was well sited for defense, situated on a narrow sliver of peninsula formed by the confluence of the San Sebastian River on the town's western perimeter and the wide brackish bay of the Matanzas River, which formed its harbor. The river and bay system provided St. Augustine with a kind of natural moat, which the Spaniards had further augmented by military works. St. Augustine's principal fortification was the Castillo de San Marcos, a massive stone fort located along the Matanzas River at the town's northeast corner artillery fire from its gun deck could protect both the harbor and the surrounding countryside to the distance of a mile in all directions. The town would present a formidable defensive force, but General Matthews and Governor Estrada both knew that the western side of St. Augustine was the most vulnerable approach. On the 26th, McIntosh sent word to Estrada demanding that he surrender the town to the Patriots and offered, quote, the same terms given at Fernandina, full security of life, liberty, and property, payment of debts, freedom of religion, and the beneficial consequences that must result from an annexation to the United States. Estrada assembled his war council and considered the Patriot offer. Then, on the 27th, quote, Estrada presented himself in the plaza of St. Augustine and addressed the people with the governor's house and church as his backdrop, standing beneath the red and gold banner of Spain. He told them they must stiffen their determination to resist. Still thinking that St. Augustine was soon to be theirs, Matthews delivered remarks on April 4th upon his departure from Fernandina to join McIntosh and the other troops at the Spanish capital and asserted that, quote, I go to St. Augustine and from there our victorious men move on Mobile and Pensacola. But we will not stop. On to Venezuela to rout the autocratic Spaniards and plant the flag of freedom over all of South America. Little did he or his supporters know that the siege of St. Augustine would prove to be the end of Matthews's efforts, due to events happening that same day hundreds of miles north in Washington. News of what had transpired on Amelia Island made its way north like a wave. When Georgia Governor David Mitchell heard about the Patriots' actions, he was, as described by Cusick, quote-unquote, stupefied. Mitchell wasn't necessarily upset about the blatant invasion of Spanish territory by American forces so much as he wished that he had been given notifications sooner so that he could have sent forces to assist in the effort as well as ensure that Georgia was prepared to handle any, quote, retaliations from the Spanish, the British, or the Indians. The reaction by the Madison administration was, was a bit more critical. Though, to be fair, the government in Washington had authorized Matthews and McKee's mission in the first place, the timing and the way that the Patriot War had begun were both problematic. News of the taking of Amelia Island arrived in the Capitol around the time that the Henry affair was backfiring on the administration, as discussed last episode. Rather than taking East Florida, the administration's priority was rallying support around the idea of war with Britain. Instead of being able to focus on that, they were now having to deal with negative press coverage about Americans invading Spanish territory. Naturally, in early April, British Minister to the U.S. Augustus Foster and the Spanish diplomatic representative in the U.S., Don Luis de Onís, sent formal protests to Secretary of State Monroe. President Madison wrote to his predecessor Jefferson later in the month, asserting that, quote, Matthews, has been playing a tragicomedy in the face of common sense as well as of his instructions. His extravagances place us in the most distressing dilemma. The administration had wanted what was, on the surface, a homegrown rebellion like that in West Florida where U.S. involvement was a plausible deniability. Instead, American forces had been led across the border and the land was being handed over to the U.S. by other Americans who were clearly acting as puppets. After meeting with Southern leaders in Washington, some of whom advocated using the same justifications that had been used to take Baton Rouge to retain control of Amelia Island, Madison and Monroe realized they couldn't do so without risking having to fight in the South, as well as the anticipated battles to come in the North, and stretching already limited resources Beyond any hope of victory. Thus, on April 4th, Monroe wrote to Matthews, quote, an official repudiation and revoked the General's Commission on the claim that he had violated his instructions. On the 10th, British Minister Foster was assured by Monroe, quote, that the President had never authorized an attack on Spanish East Florida and that the United States would take steps to return the occupied areas to Spanish control. That same day, Monroe wrote to Georgia Governor Mitchell to appoint him as a U.S. commissioner with the authority, quote, to negotiate with the Spanish authorities over the East Florida situation. Mitchell's charge was to reassure the Spanish that the Americans were going to turn back over any lands in East Florida taken by the Patriots, but to also delay the removal of American forces in the area as much as possible in the hopes that there might be, quote, a peaceful session of the province. The administration still wanted East Florida, mind you. However, when we examine other events happening around the time leading up to the declaration of war against Great Britain, we'll get a better sense of why Madison and his chief advisors decided to decelerate on the drive to take Florida. As mentioned last episode, Congress had authorized an $11 million bond issue to take place as facilitated by the Treasury Department. These bonds would be issued with a 6% interest, and it was hoped that this would help to meet Treasury Secretary Albert Gallatin's anticipated war-related expenses for the 1812 fiscal year. Gallatin was initially optimistic about the bond issue and even, quote, outlined a procedure for reducing subscriptions to the loan in the event that more than $11 million was committed. But this was a problem that Gallatin did not have to worry about. When the books were open for the bond issue in early May, the Secretary was dismayed to find that only $6.12 million had been raised. Further, $1.61 million had been committed by state banks quote, on special contract terms, which meant that the principal would need to be repaid after just one, two, or five years. With this initial failure, Gallatin had to start reaching out to bankers in key eastern cities including Stephen Girard of Philadelphia, a wealthy merchant whose private bank had just opened that year, to begin to facilitate loans that would help the nation to prepare for funding a war effort. Meanwhile, in June, Congress gave the Treasury authorization to issue, quote, up to $5 million in Treasury notes, or one-year bonds that paid 5.4% interest, in order to try to make up the difference. Ultimately, only $3.54 million would be raised from these one-year notes, and the Treasury would be forced to reopen the bond issue to squeeze out any additional funding they could. Not an auspicious start. Meanwhile, Madison was pushing for establishing an infrastructure that could manage the war effort. On April 24th, he sent a special message to Congress requesting that two assistant Secretary of War positions be created to boost up the bureaucracy that would be handling the recruitment, provisioning, and direction of a larger military force. However, Congress did not see this request in that light. Increasingly, there were questions being raised in the legislative halls about having a Secretary of War whose only military experience was serving as a surgeon and running a military hospital in the Revolutionary War and a Secretary of the Navy who had absolutely no maritime experience of which to speak. As Representative John Randolph of Roanoke, Democratic-Republican from Virginia, quipped during the debate over the Assistant Secretary Positions, quote, I will say this much of the Secretary of War, that I do verily believe that he is at least as competent to the exercise of his duties as his colleague who presides over the Marine. Definitely not a compliment. Congress denied the request for the new offices as they were concerned that these would only prop up the ineffective Secretary of War William Eustace while they wanted to force Madison's hand to find a new person to lead the War Department. Secretary of the Navy Paul Hamilton, meanwhile, had to deal with the protests of Captains William Bainbridge and Charles Stewart to the administration's initial plan to just hold, quote, the entire American fleet, safe in port for the duration of the conflict with Britain. Why, you ask, would the government not want to make use of the Navy in the war effort? In part, it was due to the success of the Jeffersonian restructuring of the Navy to focus on coastal defense gunboats at the expense of ocean-going vessels. While they had a few frigates and seaworthy vessels at their disposal, the Madison administration knew that, that the American force paled in comparison to the Royal Navy, which was the undisputed champion of the Seven Seas at the time. American naval defeats would be demoralizing to the overall war effort. No, better to trust their abilities on land rather than risk the loss of ships at sea. However, when Bainbridge and Stewart heard of this, they set up a meeting with Secretary Hamilton in February 1812 and urged that the frigates be allowed to go to sea. They then asked for a meeting with President Madison, and after the meeting, Madison told them that, quote, it is victories we want. If you give us victories and lose your ships afterwards, they can be replaced by others. This, however, meant that Secretary Hamilton had to actually develop a naval strategy for the war. Given his lack of maritime experience, Hamilton turned in late May to two acclaimed captains, Stephen Decatur, and John Rogers to get their opinion on a proper strategy. There were a few options to consider. The Navy could be used as more of a coastal patrol unit or sent further abroad. The strategy could be one more focused on the defense of American merchant ships or a more offensive plan to attack British commerce. Ships could be sent out on solo missions or deployed in squadrons. Decatur recommended more of an offensive strategy, quote, that the frigates should be deployed singly or in pairs and without giving any specific instructions as to place of cruising, but to rely on the enterprise of the officers so that they would not be easily detected by the British, would cover large distances more quickly and could attack British convoys. Decatur reasoned that the loss of one or two ships would not be a huge impact to the overall effort. Rogers also recommended a good offense though his plan involved, quote, a squadron consisting of two or three of the fastest frigates in the American Navy supplemented with a sloop of war being dispatched to cruise in the waters surrounding the British home islands. Naturally, Rogers volunteered to be the commodore of the squadron. As the senior officer in the Navy, it would make sense for Rogers to command a force key to the American naval strategy. I should make a quick note here that at this point, The rank of Admiral did not exist in the U.S. Navy. The highest permanent rank was Captain, though a Captain could be named to a temporary command as a Commodore to give him more authority over an entire squadron of ships rather than one singular ship. Hamilton hesitated in devising a naval strategy based on the recommendations from Decatur and Rogers. In the absence of a plan from the Navy Department, Madison, in consultation with his Cabinet, recommended that the entire Navy be moved to the Port of New York where Rogers was waiting aboard the USS President and that Rogers be commissioned as a Commodore over the full naval force. Immediately following the declaration of war, Rogers was eager to set off, but day after day, no orders arrived from Hamilton. Back in Washington, on June 21st, Secretary of the Treasury Gallatin, while no fan of the Navy in general, complained to President Madison that Hamilton, quote, still had not sent the needed cruising orders to the force gathered in New York. Those orders, according to Gallatin, quote, ought to have been sent yesterday, and at all events, not one day longer ought to be lost. Madison gathered his cabinet the next day, and afterwards, the orders were sent for Rogers, quote, to divide his force into two squadrons to cruise in the offing near New York and Norfolk, respectively. Little did the officials in Washington know, however, that Commodore Rogers had already ordered his squadron out of New York Harbor the day prior to the issuing of those orders. As described by historian Ian Toll, quote, It was not the first time an American commander had sailed without orders, nor would it be the last. The Commodore's decision bordered on insubordination, but it also revealed boldness, initiative, and a keenness to be at sea. Rogers grasped what Hamilton may have only dimly understood, that every hour lost to dithering gave the enemy another hour to react to the American declaration of war. With Rogers and his squadron at sea, it wouldn't be long before they ran into a British ship, and indeed, on the 23rd, Rogers aboard the USS President sighted the HMS Belvidera 100 miles southeast of Nantucket Shoal. At 4.20 p.m., the first shots of the War of 1812 were fired from the President. Unfortunately, 10 minutes later, as described by Toll, quote, one of the chase guns on her, i.e. the President's, main deck burst, tearing a gaping hole in the forecastle and killing or wounding 16 men. Rogers himself was among the casualties. One of his legs was bloodied and broken. Still, he maintained command of his ship, but soon enough, the Belvedere sailed away from the damaged president and the engagement ended. Rogers took a few days to heal as repairs were done on the ship, but on June 26th, they were off again, ready to take on the British Navy once more. Once war was declared, a strategy was also needed for prosecuting military operations on land. In this, Eustace would defer to his predecessor as Secretary of War, Henry Dearborn. As noted by historian Stephen Roush, unlike Eustace, Dearborn actually came with combat experience. He had served in the Continental Army and had been involved with battles ranging from the beginnings at Bunker Hill to the last major battle at Yorktown. Though commissioned as a major general, Roush notes that, quote, Dearborn lacked the statutory authority and the staff to fully oversee Army operations. And, like Eustace, he was overwhelmed by the crush of responsibilities incumbent with mobilizing guiding the national war effort. This did not stop him from proposing one of the most audacious military strategies to that point in American history. As noted in episode 4.18, one of the primary objectives of the Warhawks in a declared war against Britain was the acquisition of Canada for the U.S., which was not so outlandish of a goal as we might imagine looking at the situation in the modern context with a small settler population and sparse military resources spread across a large expanse of geography, with the right strategy, ample resources, and an able commander, Canada might just have come under American control. Instead, the Madison administration had the Dearborn plan. The general planned a three-pronged invasion of Canada, One force would be sent via Lake Champlain up to Montreal to take that strategic city on the St. Lawrence River. Another army would invade from Detroit into western Upper Canada, quote, to disrupt British influence with the Indians and deny the British access to the Upper Great Lakes. In between those two offensives, a third force would enter Upper Canada from New York in the Niagara River region to cut off British navigation between Lakes Erie and Ontario. On the surface, this was a sound strategy. However, if you're not familiar with the Great Lakes region, dear listener, I'd invite you, if you are able, to pull up a map of it. This battle strategy stretched from Detroit in eastern Michigan over to north of the New York-Vermont border. This was hundreds of miles of geography involved in 1812 when there were far fewer passable roads and transportation was by horse and cart if you were lucky. Communication meant either messages delivered verbally or by hand on paper. The Dearborn plan depended on a near simultaneous invasion from all three entry points to ensure that British military forces in Canada were either stretched too thin to be effective or concentrated in one theater while the other two were open. This plan also relied upon not one but three forces spread over hundreds of miles, being well supplied by the War Department. If any or all of this is not ringing alarm bells in your head, then just know that it should. The reality of the situation is that the War Department, from the top down, was incapable of adequately supplying one active military force, much less three, and the geographic barriers to the logistics of coordinated attacks were near impossible at the time to overcome further remember what rouse said about the commanding general henry dearborn who in fact after he submitted his plan and it was approved decided to leave the coordination of everything to eustace dearborn would take charge of the army of the northeast and leave the folks in washington to work out the other two fronts for the Western Front, Revolutionary War veteran William Hull was put in command. As noted by Roush, quote, Hull had fought in several Revolutionary War battles, including Monmouth and the attack on Stony Point. He had ended the war as a lieutenant colonel in the Continental Army. Since 1805, and as discussed in episode 3.29, Hull had served as the governor of the Michigan Territory. Again from Roush, quote, Hull had a firm grasp of the military situation and cautioned Eustace and Madison about the challenges of invading Canada. Hull spent time in March and April 1812 advising the administration on the situation in the West and indeed recommended to the president that the Michigan Territory be abandoned completely in order for forces to be moved to more defensible positions elsewhere. Madison rejected this idea and insisted that Detroit had to be held. Whether it was due to his concerns over the viability of the mission or his age or his unwillingness to leave his post as territorial governor, the 59-year-old Hull declined the commission as brigadier general of the Northwestern Army the first two times Eustace offered it. The third offer, though, came with the provision that Hull would be able to retain his position as governor in addition to his military commission. So Hull accepted. Given the geographic nature of Michigan as a peninsula, which at this point was just the lower peninsula, Hall knew that a naval force would be key to ensuring the defense of Detroit and forcing the British out of Upper Canada. Madison, however, felt that, quote, a naval force on Lake Erie was unnecessary. And indeed, in their consultations with Secretary of the Navy Paul Hamilton, the two top naval commanders that the U.S. had at that time, Captains Decatur and Rogers, had not indicated a need for naval forces on the Great Lakes. In the meantime, Hull made his way west to Ohio to gather militia forces there before returning to Detroit on July 5th with a force of 2,500 where he, quote, began to plot a frontal assault on British targets. Little did he know, though, that the British were off to an early start on American targets. Nearly 300 miles to the north, the American garrison at Fort Mackinac near the strait connecting lakes Huron and Michigan was surprised to find a hostile force at their doorstep on July 17th. British Captain Charles Roberts at nearby Fort St. Joseph learned before the commander at Fort Mackinac about the declaration of war and quickly assembled, as described by historian René Chartron, quote, a force of royal veterans, a unit of aged soldiers known for its love of rum but whose men were often battle-tested, and Canadian fur traders, as well as Ojibwe and Ottawa Allied forces. This force positioned a small cannon near Fort Mackinac, and, realizing that they were outnumbered, the American garrison surrendered without firing a shot. In their surrender, they learned a bit too late that the U.S. was now at war. Hull, meanwhile, began his invasion by crossing the Detroit River on July 12th and taking the small town of Sandwich. His orders from Eustace were to proceed into Upper Canada and take Fort Malden in Amherstburg, approximately 15 miles south of Sandwich. In what would prove to be a constant problem with the war effort in the north, Hull had to deal with a militia regiment that refused to cross over to Sandwich, asserting, quote, that it could not be required to fight outside the United States. In its purest sense, the militia was all about defense, not offense. However, without a large standing army, if the plan to invade Canada was going to work, the commanders on the ground would have to rely upon militia units to supplement the regular troops under their command. Still, sandwich was taken, and after Hull issued a proclamation warning against Canadian resistance, quote, Almost six hundred Canadian militiamen at Fort Malden deserted and returned home to their families and crops. It seemed like things were starting off on rather of a good note. Whatever optimism he had in this initial move was shattered on july twenty eighth when Hull learned from Ojibwe traders that Fort Mackinac had been taken by the British. Hull apparently exclaimed, quote, the whole northern hordes of Indians Will be let loose upon us. A few days later, he learned that Wyandot south of Detroit had allied with the British and were cutting off the road between Detroit and Ohio, a vital route for supplies. Thus, on August 7th, General Hull ordered his forces out of Canada and back to Detroit. Two attempts to break through the Wyandotte blockade failed, and the situation in Detroit became increasingly desperate. As noted by Roush, quote, Isolated and low on supplies, Hull desperately needed the rest of the U.S. Army to reduce the pressure on his beleaguered force by attacking other points of the British defensive system, just as envisioned in American strategy. That was the whole point of Dearborn's three-pronged invasion, divide and conquer. If the other two forces sprung into action as they were supposed to, then the pressure on Hull would be relieved. They could likely force the road back open and escort into Detroit the waiting supply convoy on the other side of the Wyandotte blockade. Meanwhile, in the wake of the news from Fort Mackinac, General Hull had sent urgent orders westward to Fort Dearborn, an isolated frontier post on the southwestern shore of Lake Michigan, which is the location of the modern-day city of Chicago. The fort was to be evacuated, and the garrison was to proceed to Fort Wayne in the Indiana Territory to shore up defenses there. This force set out from Fort Dearborn along the lake shore on the morning of August 15th. However, a mile and a half past the Chicago River, a force of around 400 Potawatomi attacked. And despite the Americans agreeing to surrender if there would be no further killing, the Potawatomi proceeded to kill the rest of the party. 53 Americans were killed, including two women and 12 children. This would not be the only attack on American troops that day. Back in Detroit on the 15th, General Hull was presented with a demand from the British commander of Upper Canada, General Isaac Brock. The message was simple. Quote, the force at my disposal authorizes me to require of you the immediate surrender of Detroit. It is far from my intention to join in a war of extermination, but you must be aware that the numerous body of Indians who have attached themselves to my troops will be beyond control the moment the contest commences. The fact that Brock was in the area at all came as a shock to Hull, but as noted by Roush, quote, Brock was far better informed about American operations than Hull and knew that the three-pronged near-simultaneous attack that Hull was counting on saved the day was not happening. Thus, he used the Great Lakes waterways, which the British controlled, to transport 300 troops to the Detroit area to deal conclusively with one of the three anticipated fronts of the war. Despite this unsettling turn of events and the stated threat of massacre at the hands of Native forces, Hull rejected Brock's demand and pledged to fight. Receiving Hull's reply, quote, Brock ordered his artillery to fire on Fort Detroit from the Canadian side of the Detroit River and soon two British warships joined in. The Northwestern Army returned fire but the assault kept on through the night with two soldiers being killed and the nerves of civilians who had sought refuge in the fort being frayed. As described by historian T.M. Miles, the terrified occupants of Detroit town desperately buried money and silver or directed their slaves to do so. Evaluating his options and realizing that they were in a no-win scenario, General William Hull, on August 16th, ordered his troops to, quote, march to the parade ground and stack their arms while the British cut the American flag from the staff and hoisted the Union Jack to the accompaniment of God Save the King. The next day, Hull, his officers, his staff, and soldiers from the regular army were transported from Detroit, bound for Quebec, to be held as prisoners of war. Hull's surrender ensured the safety of both the military and civilian population gathered at the fort, but it also meant the loss of a key strategic post in the Northwest and a serious challenge to American control of the lands west of the Appalachians. As noted by Skaggs and Altoff, quote, "'The British captured nearly 2,400 muskets and rifles,' the gunpowder and lead in the arsenal, plus 39 pieces of artillery. The brig Adams was lost and promptly renamed the Detroit. British control of the Upper Lakes was complete. The Americans had no armed vessel above Niagara Falls. Even if the British didn't directly invade American territory, there was always Tecumseh and his confederacy, as well as the other Native nations looming as a threat to the scattered settlements of the West. Again, from Skaggs and Altoff quote, militarily, the whole northwestern frontier of the United States from the Ohio River northward was now open to Indian raids. We'll explore more of the ramifications of the surrender of Detroit in our next episode, but for now, the time has come to draw this episode to a close. Special thanks again to Kevin and Ryan from the Almost Presidents podcast for providing the intro quotes for this episode. Be sure to check out their podcast anywhere fine podcasts can be found. Special thanks also to Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. You may not realize how much time is involved in editing each episode to produce a quality sound and having Christian's editing expertise at work enables me to devote more time to researching, recording, and everything else involved in the process. If you'd like to enlist Christian services for your podcast, be sure to check out his website at yourpodcastpalalloneword.com. Special thanks also to the folks at the Colonial Music Institute at George Washington's Mount Vernon, who graciously allowed us the use of clips from Hull's Victory as performed by David and Ginger Hildebrand for our intro and outro music. You can find out more about the great work that the Colonial Music Institute is doing to research and share information about early American music and dance by going to mountvernon.org and typing in Colonial Music Institute in the search field. I'll have a link to the Almost President's podcast, Your Podcast Pal and the Colonial Music Institute on the source page for this episode on my website, presidency's Podcast All one word, dot com. There, you can also find the sources used for this episode, all past episodes of the podcast, links to more information on all the U.S. presidents, and a way to leave a rating and review for the podcast. Speaking of, I had a recent five star review come in from PCAS Junkie entitled Great Detail. The review reads as follows, quote, I love the detail and obvious passion from the host. The math, 3.5 presidents covered in six years, suggests that he will be covering Franklin Pierce in 2041, Woodrow Wilson in 2065, Bill Clinton in 2089, and should, quote unquote, catch up in roughly 2119. I'm cheering for you, Jerry, but the pace has to quicken. Thank you for your kind words as well as the calculations. Should I get enough patrons or figure out some means of being able to fully support myself through the podcast or other presidential history efforts, the pace would certainly quicken. As it is, I thank you for your patience. While I could cover presidencies faster, and I do have esteemed colleagues with other podcasts who do so, and quite admirably in their approach— I'd like to think that the Presidency's podcast is something unique in the level of detail. Certainly, I feel that I've learned much more about the Madison Presidency than I ever had previously in working on this series, and I hope you feel the same as I. If you'd like to support the efforts of this podcast, I hope you'll consider leaving a rating and review to help me get the word out there. Thanks to all who have done so thus far, and a special thanks to the folks who have gone that extra step to become patrons of the podcast. If you'd like to become a patron of presidencies, just go to patreon.com slash presidencies to sign up. If you'd like to reach out to me, please feel free to send me an email at presidenciespodcast at gmail.com. I'm also available on social media. I'm on Mastodon, post and Facebook as presidencies on Twitter at presidencies 89 and on Instagram at presidenciespodcast again, all one word. For all of you listening, I cannot thank you enough and promise to match your patience in the time it takes to get through each presidency with an equal amount of persistence to see us through. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends.